Well, hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. Uh, before we get into the sermon this morning, it is July. Uh, it feels like July. It is midsummer, so I wanted to give a quick midsummer sort of vision update and get you ready for what is coming in the fall. So Casey and I have been uh, praying and brainstorming what to what to do to lead us into year two of Trinity. We're wrapping up the first year of uh, Trinity gatherings, and so how do we move into year two uh, with with strength and prayerfully? And uh, with our leadership team, we've been uh, discussing, and, and we want to step into a formal uh, membership. Uh, we've had the, the spirit of membership here from the beginning, but we decided in the first year not to introduce formal membership, but rather we're going to do that in August. So beginning in August and going through September, we're going to take five or six weeks in our Sunday gatherings to describe uh, what it means to join and to belong to a local church. Our big desire here at Trinity is to see you shaped and formed in the image of Christ. And so what we want to do with our membership is set up our membership with a, a clear, well-designed plan to lead you into growth in Christ and together as a body to lead us into growth in Christ. And as we look at the scriptures and as we look at church tradition, uh, the four things that church members do are worship, community, service and giving. And so these are the four sort of rhythms that will be the, the general expectations of our members. So there's no like hidden, like you become a member and then you find out what it's all about. It's not like that. But instead, these four simple things are what uh, members do, what they commit to in a local church. Uh, Sunday attendance, participation in a community group, service in some area of the church, and then uh, giving as the Lord uh, leads you to do so. And so we're going to step into that and spend those five or six weeks deep in a, a single uh, New Testament chapter, uh, something we're really looking forward to. Um, but then even before August, one of the things we want to encourage you to do is to consider your, your giving here and how you might give in year two. And so we have these small uh, pledge cards that are, that are in the back. And you, this is not to fill out today, but just to uh, take with you, stick in your Bible or journal, uh, whatever. And then maybe in, in August or so, uh, as, as you think this month, consider what you might give to Trinity. And so we did this uh, last July, uh, and this is really helpful for a church plant because we have a financial history of like 12 months. Uh, so we don't have like all these years of like, you know, giving information where we can plot and budget based on past giving trends. We have uh, like what's in the account to go by. And so we're trying to set a budget for year two, and it kind of just feels like throwing darts in the dark. But instead, if, if you would consider letting us know what you plan to give, and it's not a, the sort of pledge where we, you know, we hold you to it, even if you lose your job or move away or anything like that. But that just helps us budget uh, with a little bit more wisdom and clarity and then better steward the resources here. So we would ask that you consider your giving. And for a lot of us, uh, if you haven't given before, it's, it's a big step even to begin giving. Uh, and so if that's where you are, we wanna just suggest the first step is to begin giving regularly. Um, second, the, the next step is sort of giving a, a tithe. That's the, the general principle in the Bible is giving 10% of your income. Uh, it's not a hard commandment in the scriptures, but it does seem to be the overall uh, pattern. Uh, and then third, if you've been giving and you've been giving a tithe for a long time and it's just sort of become routine, we would even ask you to consider that as well and consider if this might be a season where you can give above and beyond. Uh, one of the great things about giving to a church plan is that you actually get to see where your money goes and a small increase in your giving really uh, is multiplied across the church. And so uh, that's one of the things that we love about giving here is it feels like an investment 
because every, every little dollar helps so much. Uh, and it's important for us to remember that we are a church plant. Uh, we're not a small church, um, but we're a church plant. Even if the size is the same, you're like, we know that there's literally a crane behind you. <laughs> we're aware that it's a church plant. There's like dust everywhere. Um, but we remember that our mission is not just simply to be a small congregation, but it's to reach people with God's grace, to build them up in his love, and then to send them into the world to promote the renewal of our communities. And so our, our mission is, is to grow and is to expand and is, is to reach people and build them up. And then lastly, what we did back in January that I would say has been the highlight of the church. So far, that's a big statement, but highlight of the church, the celebration dinner that we did in January at a D-Rose restaurant. We're gonna do another one of those the first week of September. And so get your fancy clothes laid out now, uh, clear, your schedule, we've got a place, we've got D-Rose reserved, but it's possible we might even take it up a notch. There's an option, don't worry about it for now, but just clear off the first week of September and lay out your fancy stuff. So that's a little bit of what's coming ahead. I'll, I'll give a little bit more uh, of this update, you know, the next couple of weeks as, as other people are here and rotating out. But uh, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll dive into our, our sermon text this morning. Father, we are, are so thankful to who you are. Uh, we are so thankful for your, your faithfulness, your goodness towards us. Um, you, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so with, with confidence, not in ourselves, but in who you are and the way you work in our lives and in our communities, we, we commit this church to you again. Lord, we endeavor not to plant this church in our in our education or our giftedness or our, our skill or our own energy, but we pray that, that you would establish this church. You would, you would use our, our energies and our, our gifts, but, but Lord, would you establish us in the way that you want to see us be planted? Would you draw in the, the right people through relationships and would you build us up at, at the speed that, that you want us to grow at and would you establish us as a healthy thriving local church so that many could could know you and, and hear your gospel and experience you in community. And so, Father, we pray for uh, for your guidance, for your, your leading this, this summer and this fall as we enter uh, the next stage, year two. Father, would you go before us? Would you even now prepare hearts of those that might come in August and, and in September? Would you prepare them to meet with you? And so, Father, we lay all this before you, and I'm so, so thankful for our people. We remember and pray for our children's ministry. We pray for Mark and Allison and Oliver and Miranda as they serve with our children this morning. Would you be with them and give them an extra measure of your grace uh, and be with us as we gather in here as well. It's in your son's name that we ask. Amen. Well, we have been in a summer series on the character of God, the, the attributes, the things that are true of God. And we're doing this series in, in a way that leads us not only to a knowledge of God, but to a, a deeper relationship and even to a, an enjoyment of God. So we're asking, how do we cultivate an enjoyment of God? And, and we've been saying that it's through knowing him as he is, as he's revealed himself to us in his word, and then by turning to him over and over, by living our lives in his presence. And so this morning's passage, we're not going to stand and, and read it as we normally do because it's 15 chapters, and uh, that might take a little bit longer than, than some of us can stand right now. So I want to I introduce uh, this topic of the faithfulness of God. What does it mean that God is faithful? 
And I want to look at the story of uh, one of the great characters in the Old Testament, Joseph. And through Joseph's life to see how God reveals himself as faithful. He reveals himself as, as an involved God, as a present God. He reveals himself as, as good. And he reveals himself as consistent. And then at the end, we have uh, just one, one point of, of application that I want to give you. I actually started with three points of application and then scratched out all three this morning and replaced it with just one. So that's how you know it's going to be really good. But this, this story, it's, uh, it's basically a documentary waiting to happen. Like it, it writes itself. The, the trailer uh, would be so easy. I mean, you have uh, this guy. He, he seemed to come out of nowhere. You know, so picture like a 30 for 30 documentary. If you're into those, this is the trailer. He seemed to come out of nowhere. His origin story was the stuff of legend. Sold by his brothers, found in a pit. It was said his wisdom saved a nation. His leadership overcame every obstacle. The whole earth bowed before him. Those who saw him saw greatness. And just like that, he was gone. Condemned to prison for a crime he didn't commit. This is the story of Joseph, son of Israel. So I want to look at this story, the story of Joseph, and then I want to get into God's faithfulness. So it begins in, in Genesis 37, and Joseph is a member of this, this royal patriarchy of Israel. His, his father is Jacob, who is also called Israel. He's the grandson of Abraham himself. And Joseph is his father's favorite son. It literally says that in the biblical text. And Joseph is given this, this ornate robe, this coat that sets him apart among his brothers. And it seems like he's not even sent out to do the hard labor in the fields like his other brothers are. The 10 brothers go out and then it's Joseph and his little brother Benjamin that stay behind. And so one day Joseph, he's 17 at the time, he shares these dreams that he has with his brothers and with his parents. And the dreams are that everybody is bowing down before him. The brothers are bowing down before him. His father and mother are bowing down before him. And I would say the first lesson is if you have a dream from the Lord that everybody's bowing down to you, just keep it to yourself. It's really Joseph's only mistake or only sin that we see is just sort of broadcasting these dreams that everybody's going to bow down to him. And so one day, same age, he's 17, Joseph is sent out into the fields by his father to check on the older brothers. And they're all away in a distant land. And Joseph catches up to the 10 brothers and they said, uh, let's, let's show this dreamer, uh, let's, let's show this dreamer who he really is. And so they take him and they throw him in a pit. They decide not to kill him, but they throw him in a pit. And then as some, some travelers by are coming, they actually sell him into slavery. They take his ornate robe and they dip it in animal's blood and they bring it back to their father and say, this is all that's left of Joseph. And so his father tears his clothes, he pulls out his beard, and he grieves the loss of his beloved son. Years later, if you fast forward to chapter 39, Joseph is, is sold as a slave into Egypt, and he ends up serving Potiphar, which is one of the, the high-ranking uh, officials in the land of Egypt. And the text says that God was so present with Joseph that everything he did had favor. Everything that he touched got better. And so Potiphar began to realize that whatever Joseph did in his house, it immediately made everything thrive and flourish. And so Joseph gets more and more influence and he's given more responsibility until finally he's the head of all of Potiphar's household. But then one day as he's entering the house, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him 
And when he refuses, she claims that he tried to overtake her. And so Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. So you can picture yourself now. You've been, uh, you grew up in this royal family. You're, you're part of this incredible faith tradition. And then you're sold by your brothers into slavery. Just when stuff starts to turn around and you get a little bit going for you in life, you get thrown back into prison. Now in chapter 40, while he's in prison, Joseph is given favor again. Everything that he does in the prison is blessed by God so that the warden of the prison puts him in charge of the entire prison. He's literally running the entire operation. Two of the men that are in the prison had worked for the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And they both had two dreams, very odd dreams, and Joseph is able to interpret these two dreams and exactly what he says comes to pass. And so even though he interprets these dreams and one of them, the cupbearer gets to return to the king's service, Joseph remains stuck in prison. It says two more years he's stuck in this prison. And that leads us to chapter 41. Two years later, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has this bizarre and terrifying set of dreams. He gathers in the, the magicians and all the, the wise men of Egypt, and none of them can tell him what it means. And it's the cupbearer who remembers back from his time in prison that there was a Hebrew man, a young Hebrew man, that told him exactly what his dream was about and what would happen. And so now we pick up our first reading in chapter 41. You'll find it in your bulletin. It says, Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. God has shown Pharaoh what, is he, what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them. The matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be put in the charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And so Joseph has been elevated from, from the pit, from the prison, back into the palace. He's made the second in command over the, the biggest empire in the world at this stage. He's literally become the prince of Egypt. He's given chariots and, and uh, servants, and, and just as God has revealed, Egypt had these seven years of incredible abundance, and Joseph led this sort of campaign to build all these extra storehouses. All the grain was put aside, and then just as the dream had said, there were seven years of famine. So as the famine comes, Egypt throws open the doors of the storehouses, and there's grain enough for all the people, and not even just for the people, but for all the surrounding nations. So think about it, now all these other nations, just to live, just to survive this incredible famine, they're coming to Egypt to buy grain. So they're bringing their, their cattle, their animals, they're bringing their, their gold, their silver, all their best possessions just to buy grain from Egypt. And so what this does for Egypt is it just makes them wealthier and stronger and just elevates them above all the other nations. And so, of course, Pharaoh is ecstatic with Joseph and continues to give him more power, more authority in the kingdom. And so this is the story arc to this point. Joseph goes from the pit 
to the palace, back to the prison, and then to the palace again. So he's now the, the prince of Egypt, the second highest ranking commander in the world. And as you think about this, this story arc, and you think about your own life, think about some of the, the moments of great success you've had, times when everything seemed to fall into place for you, times when you were, you were elevated into a higher position. And then think, too, of the times of, of trouble, of uh, failure, times where you were wrongly accused, times where everything fell apart for you. And think, what, what happened to your, your relationship with the Lord in those seasons? What happened in your, your walk with God when, when trouble came into your life, when, when the hardest thing you've, you've ever dealt with came in? What, what was the response in that, in that moment? Did the, did the trial, did the trouble, did it bring you closer to God? Did, you bring, did it bring you into more of a, a dependence on God? And in the same way, what about, what about success? What about the, the good years? What about the time when you, when you were elevated? Did that lead you to, to pride, to, to giving uh, you, know, you just more, more authority, more money, more resources, more comfort? Uh, did did that, that sort of elevation in your status, did it, did it simply serve to make you more, more comfortable and even more prideful? Or instead, did it make you more humble? Did it make you more dependent on the Lord because now you have a heavier responsibility? You have more to steward, and so with, with humility you grow in the Lord. Trouble and, and success on both sides, they don't really do anything to us, but they're revealers. They reveal what's, what's already going on, side, on inside of us in a hidden way. So trouble reveals what's going on inside of us, and success at the same time reveals what's going on inside of us. And it seems like Joseph, in both the, the troubles and the trials, and also the successes and the elevations, he, he remains just walking closely with the Lord. Neither one really phases him. Both, both things reveal this deep relationship he has. And so in chapter 42, the story kind of phases back to Israel. And this is the middle of the famine, and, and it's sort of reached its peak. And now Jacob and his family have completely run out of food. There's nothing to harvest. They are, they are at the end of their line. Their only hope for surviving this famine is to go to Egypt. And they had probably heard these rumors that Egypt has these, these storehouses of grain, that they have this young prince who, is, who has figured out how to save the nation and all other people are coming to him. So they load up their donkeys and the 10 brothers are going to make the trip all the way to Egypt. And it says that Benjamin stayed home because Jacob knew that if all 10 sons died and if Benjamin went and died, he would have no sons left. And so Benjamin stays home and the 10 brothers, the ones that had sold Joseph into slavery, they go to Egypt. Now think again how you would respond if your brothers, in fact, anybody who had wronged you, gave you the opportunity to, to totally turn the tables on them. Think of the person who has hurt you most in life, somebody who has abandoned you, somebody who has rejected you, hurt you, abused you, neglected you. Maybe even the person that's caused you the most pain in this world. And if you had a moment where they came before you needing your help and you had complete control, like their life was in the palm of your hand and you could do away with them in a moment with absolutely no repercussions, that's kind of the stuff we daydream about, right? This actually happens to Joseph. His 10 brothers come before him. And in Genesis 42, it says they come in 
and they see him and, and not recognizing him because he's been in Egypt all these years. He's got Egyptian clothes on. He's got like the tan from vacation in Cairo or whatever it was, but they don't recognize him. They come into his presence and immediately they all bow down before him and he remembers his dream. They bow down before him and they make this request. Can they buy grain from him? And Joseph, it's interesting, he doesn't retaliate, but he also doesn't reveal himself right away. He, he actually plays a series of games on them. And, and what he wants to do is find out if his father and his younger brother, Benjamin, the one who hadn't sold him, if they're still alive. And so he sends them back to get Benjamin before he'll sell them any grain. And so they come back again into their presence. And this time they bring Benjamin. And when they come back into their presence, the second time they bow down before him again, he has them cleaned up. He tells them to go shower and he puts Egyptian clothes on them. And then he treats them to an incredible feast. And so he lays out this, this spread before them, the 10 brothers plus Benjamin. He gives them this incredible food, the best food that they've had because they've been in the middle of this famine. And it says that they all got a generous portion, but Benjamin got a portion five times the size of the other brothers. So they're just bringing out like just plates on plates on plates and setting them in front of this little kid, Benjamin. And that leads us to our second reading in verse, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. They're in his presence, begging for their lives around the dinner table. And it says, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. It's absolutely remarkable, the response of Joseph before his brothers. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I think some of our kids are reading today, it says this, Even though his brothers had hurt him and hated him and wanted him dead, in spite of everything, Joseph couldn't stop loving them. His heart, which they had broken, filled up with love, and Joseph forgave them. At the very end of the story, Genesis 50, as the, as the great book of Genesis is wrapping up, we see Joseph and his brothers, they're living happily ever after. They've, they've sent for all their wives and children. The entire community of Israel has now come into Egypt. And they're experiencing incredible favor with, with Pharaoh who loves Joseph. They're given land. They're given absolutely everything they need. And Joseph, before he dies, he's reflecting on his life. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so Joseph goes from the pit to the palace to the prison and back to the palace. 
And in the story, they, they really do live happily ever after. There's, there's no more turns. They simply enjoy this life that God has given them. And so the question is, how do we see God working in his life? How do we see God's faithfulness through all of this up and down, through the incredible story arc that Joseph experiences? What does it mean that God is, is faithful for us? What are his purposes for our lives? And the three things that, that stick out to me most or that God is involved, that he's good, and that he's consistent. So he's involved, he's good, and he's consistent. First of all, he's involved. Now it's interesting, throughout most of the narrative of Joseph's life, God's name is hardly mentioned at all. God is almost like a secondary character throughout the whole 15 chapters of, of Joseph's life. But he's, he's right there between the lines and everything. It's not like Abraham where God keeps showing up and, and saying, keep going. He, he keeps revealing himself and saying, I will fulfill my promises. Don't worry, I'm, I'm right here. And it's not like Moses where he, he shows up in a burning bush or he, he speaks to him face to face in the tent of meeting, encouraging him, telling him how to lead the people. Joseph's life seems far more ordinary. His, his relationship with God is almost a better pattern for us because there aren't these incredible moments in these burning bushes. Instead, it's just a quiet hidden relationship with God. In fact, we only get a, a few little clues as to how strong it is that, that this relationship exists. When he first speaks with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the word, world, he says, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he deserves or that he desires. And God has been so present to him, so involved in these, these moments of his lives, all of the ups, all of the downs, that he's developed this sort of rock-steady confidence in who God is. So that when he shares the dream with Pharaoh, he says the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And then these two statements at the end of his life are absolutely incredible. In 45, he says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not God who sent, or it was not you who sent me here, but God. Which is remarkable because it was the brothers that sent him there. It was the brothers who sold him. And yet behind all of that was God's plan to save Israel through this famine. And then the second statement in chapter 50, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so it's this mind-blowing truth that's actually incredibly comforting that behind all of our human actions, there's this divine power and plan. Even in everything that, that the brothers do, everything that Joseph endures, there's the hand of God guiding it all. That even though there was the intent of harm and the intent of evil on the part of the brothers, God was working all of it together for his good. And not just his good individually, but the good of, of the entire people of Israel. And even not just Israel, but all of us now thousands of years later who can look at this story and see the faithfulness of God on display. I was reading Psalm 139. I came there in my readings this week and it says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And it's so beyond my mind to, to comprehend how all of my days could not only be known by God, but, but ordained by God, planned by God, protected by God. And he says in this passage that God's plan was for the saving of many lives. 
so that even the trouble, even the, the trials that come into our lives, they're still for the overall good of God's people. And when I look back on, on my own Christian life, especially the further back I look, if I look like all the way back to college, which now has been some time for me, and I think, what, what were the biggest challenges for me in college? I mean, wanting, wanting a, a group of friends as, as soon as I got here to Mizzou as a freshman. Uh, wanting, wanting good grades so I could get on to the next level. And, and how much, I mean, stress and anxiety that went into getting good grades. I mean, the biggest challenges that I faced in college. As I look back now, I realize that if God would have answered those prayers immediately, if I would have gotten the, the friends that I longed for right away, if I would have gotten all the grades that I wanted, it actually would have hurt me in the long run because I wouldn't have developed any of this dependence on the Lord. I wouldn't have grown in the ways that the Lord let me grow in college if he would have answered all my prayers the way I prayed him right away. And then now in, in adulthood, in parenting, in ministry, the, the challenges are, are, well, they're far greater. Like the, the highs have been... A, far higher and the lows have been far lower than I thought possible. And in, and in real time, and as we look back over just a couple years, it's a lot harder to see what God's doing, right? It's a lot harder to look at our lives right now and know exactly what God is up to and how he's working things together for good. But the more we look back, the more we remember what God has done, the more it starts to fit together. Romans 8 has this, this famous passage that God works everything together for the good of those who love him. And that only really makes sense if we take a far less individualistic look. Like if we said, how, how is the prison good for Joseph? Couldn't there have been another way around? Like, absolutely. But what he says is that this is for the good of God's people, that, that there was a saving of many lives through the way God orchestrated all this. And so in the same way, if we look at our individual lives and try to figure out how is this for my good right here and now, we'll never be able to do that. But instead, I think Romans 8 is actually saying God's working all things together for the good of those, plural, all of God's people, all who are loved by him and called according to his purpose. It's working together for the good of all of us. And even what's hard in, in one of our own individual lives might still be for the good of someone else. And that's why Job can say in the Old Testament, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And so the first thing is that God is involved. And I had application here, but it's scratched out. So I'm gonna keep on moving. Number two, God is good. How is God good in Joseph's life? I think if we look at individual moments and say, is, is God good to Joseph in this moment? It's really hard. If we look at our own lives and say, how, how can we say God is good when I'm, when I'm suffering so much? How can we say God is good when there's so much pain, so much hardship, so much oppression, so much death in our world? And I think this, what this causes us to do is expand our definition of good. We need a, a bigger, a, a more biblical definition of good than simply what, what feels right to us in the moment. We need to understand God's goodness is something far bigger, far greater, far more eternal than just our, our momentary happiness and peace. We need a wisdom higher than our own wisdom. God seems to have a much bigger goal in, in the, the eternal creation of things and in, in the cosmos that he has put together and this, this story of redemption that he's been working for thousands and thousands of years. It seems that his goal is a lot bigger than just my peace in this one moment. 
His goal instead is is the saving of many lives. His goal is the conformity of all of us into the image of His Son. The foundation of a people made in His image. The creation of a family that bears His name. And so the Psalms can say things like this in Psalm 100, The Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. In Psalm 108, great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. In Psalm 136, over and over, there's this refrain 10 or 12 times, his love endures forever. And so God is involved and he's good. And the third thing is that God is consistent. Again, when we look at Joseph's life and we see the ups and the downs. When you look at your own life and you see this, this crazy sets of, of mountains and, and valleys spiritually, it's easy to say, well, my life is anything but consistent. It's all over the place. And that's the truth, that life is never consistent. Life is the most inconsistent thing there is, and yet God is fully consistent. In, in Christian doctrine and in, in theology, the way we understand God and his word, this is called the immutability of God the unchangingness of God, that God in his being and his essence and the way he works in the world, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way he works in Joseph's life is the way that he works. It's the way he will work in our own lives. And even though God is often responding to our prayers, it says he even changes his mind or changes his plan when we pray to him but that only serves to, to show that he is still consistent, that he, his ways of being are so consistent that he'll even adapt or, or change in some mysterious way so that he can be consistent to who he is. It's mind-blowing, and yet it's what the scriptures say. And so we look at God's, God's presence, his, his involvedness, and what does that mean for us? We look at God's goodness, we look at God's consistency, that he, that he doesn't change. Our lives are up and down. We change, but he is the same. We say, how do we respond to this? And the one application that I kept coming back to was uh, some, I think I shared it a few weeks ago, but, but Jesse and I and, and Casey and Jess, we were at a, a conference in our, our network not long ago, and there was a pastor speaking who I think was around 70, and he was describing just some of the events of, of his life. I mean, that's, that's literally double my age. And so to think through all that he's been through in life and ministry and, and parenting and, and grandparenting. And what he said after sharing all of these incredible highs and lows was, was simply this, to stay in God's story long enough to see a resurrection. Stay in God's story long enough so that there is new life. So if you looked at Joseph's life, Joseph's life when he's in the pit sold by his brothers, or you look to his life when he's in prison after being wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, or you look to his life when he's in prison before going to see Pharaoh. You see all of these things, everything that looks like death, and yet if we stay in it long enough, the biblical witness and, and people who just know the Lord and have walked with him for a long time, they all say just stay in it. Stay in God's story. Even when you don't understand what he's writing or, or how he's operating, even when he doesn't seem involved, even when he doesn't seem good, even when he doesn't seem consistent, stay in the story. 
the best thing about Joseph's life is that he wasn't just a, a great character. He was a, a sign, like, like all the other characters in the Old Testament, a giant, like, flashing sign pointing to someone else who was coming. His whole life was pointing to, to a true and better Joseph. Somebody who, like Joseph, would be a young prince. Somebody like Joseph who would leave his, his home and his father. Somebody like Joseph whose brothers would hate him and want him dead. Somebody who, like Joseph, would be sold for, for a few measly pieces of silver. Somebody like Joseph whose heart would be broken by those he loved most. Somebody like Joseph who would be condemned even though he had done nothing wrong. Somebody like Joseph, where God would use everything that happened to him, even the darkest moment in human history, would use it all for the saving of many lives. Through Jesus, God reveals his faithfulness. He forgives the, the sins of the world. And like Joseph's family, he brings his new family into a better life together forever. Let's pray.